Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, this is the Prospect Podcast and I'm Tom Clark, the editor. Welcome everyone to your weekly serving of politics. I doubt many wanted a Mauritania Brexit though. They might have wanted a Canada Brexit, they might have wanted, but that wasn't on the, on the red bus, was it? And culture. On his deathbed, he called um, the incoming editor of the Daily Mail, Geordie Gregg, to read him Tennyson's poem about death, Crossing the Bar. And this week I met with Eric Lonergan, who's a financier, an economist and a philosopher of money, to talk us through the sci-fi world of digital currencies. We all heard about last year's Bitcoin boom and bust, but these so-called cryptocurrencies might just change the way the world is run. One of the fundamental questions in, in any monetary system is why do we use the money that we use, particularly when the money itself has no inherent value. So that's to look forward to a little later. But first, I'm here with Samir Rahim, Prospects Culture Editor, and Alex Dean, our in-house politics watcher. First of all, this time uh, to you, Samir. This week we've had sad news that uh, the author V.S. Naipaul has died and you've written a piece reflecting on his life and work. Um, whether you're a fan or not, he wasn't an easy man, was he, by any reports? No, not at all. And the, the, the sad thing is, is that over the last 20 years or so, he's become more famous for his um, uh, rather provocative comments in newspapers and uh, dismissals of his previous friends like Anthony Pohl and Paul Theroux, or saying that Jane Austen was a worthless writer than he was for his actual uh, work. My favourite of those, by the way, was when he described Tony Blair as a socialist pirate, um, <laughs> degrading, uh, degrading Britain. Um, unlike Philip Roth, who uh, was pretty much the same age and died only a few months ago, um, uh, Nipal didn't have a sort of late flowering with sort of wonderful late works. His, his last great book possibly was The Enigma of Arrival, which was in 1987. So he's had this sort of odd career where he produced from the late 50s on novel after novel, which were absolutely brilliant post-colonial stories of his time in Trinidad and then also travelling in the world and trying to find out about, um, you know, looking with a sort of an unsparing eye at uh, post-colonial societies. Um, I think it's best for us to try and remember him as he was at his best, because he really was an extraordinary writer. And but he, in fact, had to invent a genre himself. No one really knew or no one really had before written about what it was like to be a Trinidadian Indian um, moving to Britain. And he had to do it all himself. And he pretty much did it in his early 20s. 
I wonder, Samir, though, whether we should be so surprised by um, the lack of late flowering, because um, he was, of course, an author very concerned, as you say, with empire, the aftermath of empire, and how empire, this extraordinary business right around the world, tied um, personal stories together in unlikely ways. Well, that's a world that's gone, isn't it? No, absolutely. And he started off in Trinidad. He has, he said that he had a thorough colonial education. Uh, he went to the same school as C.L.R. James, another great Trinidadian writer. And um, when he came to Oxford in the 50s, he was attempting to integrate into a world where uh, Graham Greene and Evelyn Waugh and Muriel Spark and Anthony Pohl were, were the models of the writers that he that he imitated. And um, that world certainly has um, disappeared as well. Reports that when on his deathbed, he called um, the incoming editor of the Daily Mail, Geordie Gregg, to read him Tennyson's poem about death, Crossing the Bar. It's this amazing Victorian scene, uh, redolent of definitely of a, of a lost age. Um, but what we've got to remember about him is that although he did uh, fade and become a bit of a curmudgeon, and you can definitely see that in the works, which tended to lose their humour and vitality as he as he, as he aged. He produced some phenomenal works incredibly early on. Um, House for Mr. Biswas, which was published in 1961, when he was still in his early, uh, I think late 20s, early 30s, is an absolute panorama of West Indian Trinidadian life. It's Dickensian in scope, it's incredibly humorous, and uh, for me, a book that I've read three or four times and, and will happily return to again. Alex, um, you had a good go uh, earlier um, uh, in the summer. Oscar Wilde, a very different sort of um, writer who was not concerned to fit into the establishment as much as Mockett. That's right. I think actually Wilde's quite an interesting comparison with Naipaul, um, both for his similarities and differences similarities obviously he was kind of an outsider uh kind of wrestling to get in on the inside who kind of mocked victorian high society but yearned to join its ranks i think almost the more interesting point of comparison is the fact that kind of after his death wilde has been kind of um valorized and lots of the bad things he did have been kind of glossed over and, and we've kind of elevated him to this saint-like status um actually he slept with underage boys we, we'd think he was a monster <laughs> in many ways if he was, if he was around now uh, for, the, for those things um, with Naipaul it's almost the opposite I think we, we've given him a, a harsher time <laughs> um, and, and everyone's instantly come out to, to criticise him maybe slightly unfairly I think it's right that it was Naipaul who said that if you've grown up in the tropics and come to Britain you'll never get over the subtlety of the seasons and the way that they change. Um, well, they're changing here, Alex, in the middle of the uh, supposed summer holiday. It was all scorching and now it's all rather damp and wet, but Westminster is still on the beach. Um, and there are a lot of MPs um, who are doing what? They're still worrying about Brexit, I guess. Yeah, I think that the real story of the past few weeks has been the comeback of No Deal. Um, no Deal, Brexit was going to, you know, we published a huge number of articles on it everyone was talking about it everyone was worried about it um and then it kind of went away and there was that december deal uh, on the withdrawal agreement and, and kind of steps towards a transition uh, and everything seemed to calm down a little bit and, and the threat of no deal seems to kind of recede into the background a little bit um it's very much come back to the fore over the past few weeks um and i think that's really concerning because a no deal outcome would be disastrous uh, kind of not just economically but also for britain's uh, international 
uh, alliances and partnerships. So what's really changed apart from people um, going away from Westminster and having time to worry? Is it that the Chequers deal looks so unpopular that like the alternative of just letting the clock run out? Yeah, back? yeah, I think that's it. Um, I spoke to Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, the week before last on the phone and he... Uh, was under you know he he didn't kind of bite his tongue he uh he thinks that checkers is, is absolute vassalage um i think that's the word he's using to describe it vassalage um it means that we we wouldn't have a say uh but we'd have to follow rules anyway so kind of in in many respects a worse deal than we have now um and it kind of was hyping up no deal as a better option because we could go on to wto terms uh the world trade organization offers this kind of fallback option uh in his view so let's so, dig into that a bit because WTO terms is put forward and has been since almost the day after the referendum by the um, hardline Brexiteers as, well, look, we don't really need to worry because we've got this club that's not the EU that covers the whole world and means we can trade pretty favourably with most people. Why, yeah. why is that wrong if it is wrong? Um, I think it is wrong. And I think there's a couple of points I'd make. The first is is that hardcore Brexiteers like Rhys Mogg often point out that a lot of trade around the world is done on WTO terms, which is true, but misleading. <laughs> um, because while a lot of trade is kind of a raw sum is done on WTO terms, almost no country in the world trades exclusively on WTO terms, which is what we'd be doing if we crashed out onto them. Um, so we'd be pretty much in our off on our own. Uh, so as in we wouldn't be operating on trade deals with countries like the US or whatever, because we'd be... We're starting alone. from the we're starting from uh, from a base of zero, and we all lose. our deals are through the EU at the moment. That's right. Yeah, there's, there's hundreds of preferential agreements that we've got uh, through Europe, but we fall out of those uh, on a no deal. That's what no deal means. So I was reading recently that Mauritania is the only country left in the world that trades exclusively on WTO terms, uh, and and now actually. Even Mauritania, a tiny economy, has struck some preferential agreements. Um, so I think it's misleading, uh, even though technically true, to say that uh, a lot of global trade is, is conducted on these terms because um, we'd be exclusively on them. We wouldn't have anything else. Samir, the Mauritania model is one that we haven't heard much of. We had Norway and Canada. Mauritania isn't one of them. No, we haven't heard of that. And I wonder who um, or what organisation, part of the organisation, is going to be enforcing the rules uh, on WTO terms because uh, and how much influence we would have over them as well because if we were a vassal to the EU in Jacob's Rees-Mogg's terms why wouldn't we be a, a vassal to the WTO? Right I think you've both brought up uh, cr crucial points. Tom you're absolutely right kind of 52% voted leave uh, it's impossible to know uh, and discern the kind of motivations of every one of those leave voters. Maybe some were Canada, maybe some were hoping for Norway, maybe some were hoping for no deal and, and wanted a hard exit. I, I doubt many wanted a Mauritania Brexit, though. They might have wanted a Canada Brexit. They might have wanted... <laughs> but it, that wasn't on the on the red bus, was it? Be, be like Mauritania. Um, and, and if it had been, I don't know <laughs> whether the referendum would have gone the way it did. Uh, Samir, you were talking about uh, the idea of WTO vassalage, mm. uh, which is, yeah, something that... I've actually been surprised at how little this point has been made because I think it's a crucial one. Um, I think if we did leave the EU and go on to WTO terms, we'd quickly find that the Brexiteers that have spent the last months and years holding it up as some kind of trading uh, utopia would turn their fire against it when it stopped us doing everything that we want to. Um, and I think the reason for that is that their problem isn't actually with the EU per se, but more with the idea of supranational institutions kind of the reality of the globalized 21st century world, um, which act as 
constraints and checks on raw national sovereignty. So, for example, some Brexiteers have talked about us, um, if there is a no deal, just dropping tariffs on the EU, just not imposing those tariffs. Because of WTO terms, if we did that, we'd have to do that with every country in the world because of most favoured nation clauses, which would mean that instantly our farmers would be undercut by imports of grain from in African countries and so on. The, 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 the vassalage metaphor is quite telling, isn't it? Because um, it seems like in their mind that there is you can either be a vassal or a lord. Uh, and it's almost like we're sort of in a feudal situation where uh, Britain can't be the vassal, but what it must be is is the sort of um, aristocratic uh, ruler of some kind of uh, world. You might even say, you know, going back to Naipaul, we just need our empire back again. <laughs> I think uh, our colleagues here are starting to sound like they're accusing some of the Brexiteers of fantasy economics. But let's not do the economy in general, but think now about fantasy money, which is the preoccupation of our guest, Eric Longeren, who joins me now. We're delighted to be joined by Eric Lonergan, who's an eclectic mix, an economist, an author, a hedge fund manager, and last but not least, a philosopher of money. And it's with that last hat on that he recently wrote for Prospect on the question of what the world would look like if your money had a mind of its own. Um, Eric, thanks for being with us. But that's such a strange phrase. Let's go straight in and ask you what you're talking about. Yeah. Can money think for itself? Well, a lot of people will have heard of something called Bitcoin and are probably very, very confused about it. But Bitcoin, which is a very curious phenomena, which started, we don't really know how, uh, looks as if it propagated under the auspices of the illegal trade of drug money, um, and then has become a kind of global phenomena which has hijacked speculators and created all sorts of optimism about what the future of payments and money might be. Um, but it has a very curious feature, which is it has, I think it has two innovations, one of which is for the first time in history, uh, money has a memory and money, money has an intelligence, so this is something novel. And the second is, is that money can be sort of autonomous. It can determine its own rates of growth and its own forms of behavior. So it's really because of Bitcoin um, that we're introduced to this idea that money could actually have a memory. Okay, so memory and mind, if we take the first part of that, the yep. kind of... Uh, tell us with Bitcoin. I mean, people know of Bitcoin as something where there was a great deal of talk about yep. it. Everyone's anti was saying, "Oh, what's this thing? Should I buy investing in it?" And then suddenly it, it all turned to dust. Yep. Like, um, in what sense did that have a mind? The intriguing thing about Bitcoin is, and and this is largely uh, a feature designed for its security, um, for verification, is that it records all transactions and it actually records all users. So part of the inherent feature, this idea of a distributed ledger that people may have heard reference to, which is a way of verifying it. So the, one of the fundamental questions in, in any monetary system is why do we use the money that we use, particularly when the money itself has no inherent value. So, so ten, why people accept it. Exactly. A £10 note is a piece of paper which costs you know, a fraction of that to produce. It costs virtually nothing to produce. So why do we accept it in its use? And there's one 
one of the reasons we accept an institution is that it's issued by the Bank of England, it's issued by a central authority, it has credibility, so we don't think it's fraudulent. That's one dimension to it. There are very other interesting characteristics that we can come back to as to why we use it, which are in many ways more important. But Bitcoin, any new currency, faces that challenge. How are people going to know that this is an authentic currency and not fake? And Bitcoin did this through a very clever system, which was effectively by saying instead of having a single ledger, we'll have ledgers amongst the entire community. And that means any time a transaction occurs, we will have a full record of all the historic transactions, and we will have the full record distributed across all the nodes of the system. All the computers in the system will be able to identify it, and that's a way of verifying it. Now, an unintended consequence of that, in a sense, is that you have a record of all users and uses. Now, this is fascinating because it is a bit like that idea you know, that schoolchildren will have thought about, which is where has this pound note travelled? Uh, through through the history of its use, that is actually embedded in the inherent structure of Bitcoin, is a record of all users and all transactions. It's funny, isn't it? Because insofar as it popped up, apart from the great bubble and bust thing, it was about, oh, look, now you can buy heroin on the Silk Road, on the, on the dark web or whatever, and pay in this mysterious money. It was meant to be more secretive than indeed. other types of money, but you're saying actually, no, it's kind of much clearer what's going on with well, it. Well, indeed, and there's, a, there's a, a sort of beautiful irony in that this was heavily embraced by libertarians, because there was the idea that it's outside of the banking system, so you don't have bank accounts, so there was a, there was a kind of notion and that it's free from a central authority, the government, the state, the central bank. But the irony is, this is way more traceable than physical cash. I mean, we have no way of knowing prior uses and prior uses of physical cash. But in an electronic currency such as Bitcoin uh, or a cryptocurrency of this sort, the uh, you, you have a full record of transactions. And I think actually that opens some really, really interesting challenges. So if we think of these two, two, two dimensions, let's say Every we, we stop using paper pound coins or paper paper ten pound notes, and we start using digital coins and digital notes and digital money. But we can record all the transactions and all of the users. Well, how would we then design that? Um, would we put constraints on that? And similarly, if we're if the currency is to be autonomous, how do we want it to be autonomous? So how do we want it to propagate? How do we want it to grow? How do we want it to change? And it's those possibilities that Bitcoin opens one's imagination to. So um, to get a bit more concrete, the Texan libertarians or whatever who like the idea of this because the government can have collapsed and we'll still have a way of trading it might not actually like it when they realise what the the potential is because some kind of very strict forms of social control, making sure people pay their own taxes and maybe even that people behave themselves could... uh... Absolutely. And I think this is an inherent tension within the kind of Bitcoin community. And it is there quite early on because, of course, some of them spotted this and go, but hang on a minute. You know, there is a dimension which, if authorities wanted to, there is a trace here. Um, So so in a sense, you know, so so I think there was that tension. but, but, But you're absolutely right. I mean, in principle, we could open this up in extremely interesting ways. So we can both regulate the uses of the currency. So for example, I might say, 
I don't want to be using a currency which has been used to finance human trafficking, the arms trade, environmental degradation. Um, so, in, 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 in a, and, and if I have a, a money with a history embedded in it and a memory embedded in it, I'm either going to prohibit, create a money that prohibits those types of transactions or gives me information about those transactions so I can reject it. And similarly, I might want information on the users. So we may be, we would be able, for example, to create a money where if you haven't paid your taxes or if you're engaged in certain activities, you wouldn't have access to the money. So it does open this fascinating possibility of giving us a huge amount more information about kind of dirty money and clean money. So, um, so who's the, you said that we might be able to create a, a currency that, yeah. that, that, that did good, that wasn't, you know, paying slave wages in, in Bangladesh or whatever it was. Um, but who is the who's the we who's doing this creation? We know that there are some ethical money schemes out there, Brixton Pound, Stroud Pound. Tell us about how those work and whether there's any lessons. Well, this is the other thing I think that is really fascinating about money. So there's, there's two reasons as to why we ex- we accept a £10 note or a $10 bill. One is we have some reasonable degree of confidence in the issuer. So we we do actually think this is a legitimate. We don't think it's, it's a phony note. We think mm. it's real. It's not counterfeit. But there's another reason, which is, and this has struggled philosophers and economists and pretty much anyone who's taught thought about money at any point in time has worried about this, which is that it seems as if the entire basis is one of trust. So it's an inherently public good. So the only reason money has any value, my money has any value, is because you accept it for payment. So it is actually collectively owned. And this is why ultimately it has tended to be the case that the state becomes the issuer of money. We could never imbue that kind of power to a private entity. Um, it has to, because because the 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 the, the inherent value of the monetary system is based on us collectively agreeing to use it. So I do think that that the, the what technology is opening up, what innovation is proposing here with respect to money, has to be in the form of a public debate because we have to decide collectively as a community what type of money um, we want. So and and that's where you know those examples. And I I, I think there are some very interesting. Uh, implications of this which one is that this is highly unlikely that the benefits of this innovation is going to accrue to a private company at least in the sense of a money because a private company will never have the community and we will never really tolerate a private company having that degree of power so that's one thing that's very important to accept first of all the second very important point is people tend to get obsessed with the technology and this is true whenever there's technological innovation whereas actually the power of a currency is not in its technology it's in the size of its user base it's in the size of the network, how many people will accept it as a money is mm. going to be the basis of its value. Because you talked, didn't you, about Hume saying it's like a language. Indeed. It's all got to be. Yeah. And, but these have gone right back, haven't they, that people have philosophised about yeah. money. And um, there's always been a lot of murk. But if you do go right back, isn't it the case that there used to be banks that did compete in exactly this way? And when we look at other areas, we might have said in the past, well, we will never accept utilities that just like dictate the way we live our lives. And yet with Google and Facebook, maybe we do. Are you not being a bit too sanguine to just say that we're not going to put a private company in charge of this? Well, I, maybe maybe I am. But I think, I think if you look at the history of money, 
that's what's tended to happen is that that there are you can think of it in terms of scale economies that that it's actually just so inefficient. I mean, people like Hayek desired historically that we would have competing monies. This has actually been a tension in free market economics right from the outset. It's the monetary system. We have somebody like Friedman, of course, who's a great believer in deregulation, uh, free markets, except when it comes to money. Actually, he's pretty draconian in terms of his treatment of the banking system and a big believer in state intervention in the banking system. And Hayek struggled with this. He wanted lots of competing private monies. The problem is it's totally impractical. It's like it, it, is a, it is analogous to us all using a private language. There's a reason why languages scale, because language and money are extremely useful tools, but their utility derives simply in how many people use it. That's why, unfortunately, I have reservations about things like, you know, the Brixton Pound or these 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 local ideas. They're very well-intentioned, but and inherently... the idea there is you only spend it in an area, don't you? Yeah. We all know where we stand in this local community, That's and right. so it can't be going to a gun yeah. runner in Yemen. I, I mean, I have sympathy with that, but but I think the problem is that, 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 that for a money to have value, you want as many users as possible. Where I do think there is a huge opportunity is in the social sector. Because the social sector, in contrast to the private sector, we might be willing to grant them the benefits of creating a currency. And they also have a very, very large natural constituency. So, for example, if the social sector got together and said, we're going to create an ethical currency. And who is this? Charities? This could be social enterprises. This could be charities. This could be, you know, the likes of Greenpeace. You, you could have the full, the full spectrum of not-for-profit entities which are attempting to have some sort of social, positive social impact, you could imagine they get together as a community. Because the thing is, any monetary system also creates seniorage. Seniorage is effectively the value that's created by the issuer. So the reality is the UK government... Uh, has a license to print money in both senses of the word, right? It does print the money, but it also gains all of the economic benefit from from printing the money, right? So, so when the, if the, if the government, you know, you think of quantitative easing, if the, when the government needs to spend money, it can effectively create money to spend it. Um, so, so there is enormous value if you are the issuer, and that again, that that to me is why. Uh, you, you, you can't really let the private sector control it because you can't allow, you know, they, they would just simply be able to issue more currency a, a, at their will. Um, that would be an extraordinary gift of, of, of value, which is based on something that's, that, that's real, its real value originates in the community. Now, we might allow the social sector to do that. So you could say, well, if, if, if a collection of social enterprises, charities, not-for-profit entities are going to generate a surplus... Mm creating an ethical currency for us, you can absolutely see people endorsing that and supporting it. Let's just have a word on um, finance and the sector. Because, I mean, um, lots of people who are very keen on things like the Brixton Pound are very hostile towards finance and they think it's... But you work in it, you're... um, uh, running a, a hedge fund, how how do you how do you square doing that with the thoughts you've got on reforming money? Well, I think the the, the you know the financial sector has is both the lifeblood of the economy, as we witnessed in two thousand and eight. If the financial system stops, the economy stops. Um, and if you look at it anthropologically, the finance originates in extended family structures. Right. As soon as you create young people and old people, 
you need finance. And in 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 in, sm- in, in, in you know large tribal communities, you didn't you didn't have official formal financial structures by which to do that. There was just an assumption that young people would look after the elderly, um, and there was this kind of intertemporal exchange through time. The problem is is when you create huge complex societies where you can't run everything on the basis of familial obligation, you need a financial system to intermediate it. The problem is that the, the financial system does appear to have inherent instabilities, perhaps precisely because it tends to become complicated. Um, there are huge interdependencies. So I think you know there, there is a kind of social obligation on anybody involved in the financial sector also um, because we have expertise, but to be absolutely alert to how it can be reformed, how it can be improved, because it is something that's essential to the functioning of our societies, but something that seems to have inherent imperfections. So I am always on the lookout for ways in which it can be improved. A lot of prospect readers, I imagine, will be more um, very alert to this idea that we're living through an age of technological disruption. Perhaps there's a natural focus in the last year or two on what that's meant politically. Um, uh, and you're extending it to economics here, you know, so so you've got extremism, you've got fake news, you've got all the rest of it. And you see what I mean? That the, the, um, the emphasis in our discussion is mostly on a negative take on what technology yeah. is doing. And yet you're saying it might be able to do something very positive in economics. Yes. I mean, I, I think this is kind of inherent tension in technology that we need to be really clear about which is, I think, the reality of human psychology, and, and I see this in, you know, as I study as, as a financial market participant, a lot of my work is studying, is studying human psychology. It, human beings do not like uncertainty and change, by and large. Some, some do, probably a minority, but most don't. Most people like predictability and stability. Uh, and the problem with rapid technological change um, is is it's the opposite, right? It, it suddenly means your 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 job insecurity increases, your skills maybe become redundant. You don't understand how you're supposed to be operating in 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 in, in, this, in the life that you've got used to. So rapid change does cause people a very high degree of discomfort, stress, mm. and anxiety. And the flip side is, of course, technological progress is technological progress. So there are potentially huge benefits. So you know, so my own sense is. That, in a sense, is the challenge for policymakers is to is is to kind of deal with both. You need to provide insurance policies and protection to people against change. You you, you ultimately you want to empower people so that they can exploit change, um, and then you want to be alert to those areas where there can be benefits. And 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 this is precisely the kind of challenge, you know, that is posed by these kind of currencies. I mean, admittedly, within the currencies that are highly unlikely to be impacting most people's daily lives. I mean, again, I would, I, I, you know, from a, from a financial perspective as an investor, you know, I, I would absolutely sit back and watch what happens here because I think it's a, it's a highly, highly dangerous area from an investment standpoint. Um, but I do think we need to think very, very carefully about these innovations and think about how we can use them in a way that can be socially beneficial. I, I mean, I suppose like all of these things, you can think of a spectrum going from, I don't know, Wikipedia to Cambridge Analytica. Yeah. And it's a question of where we're going to come out on that spectrum. But you're kind of emphasising the the Wikipedia end that like people can work together to see to it that money's spent in better ways. Absolutely. And I think this is partly what I wanted to do with the piece and what you and I discussed, Tom, is that is the there needs to be a public debate. And the sooner the public debate happens, I think the better. Because this is something that 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 money is ours collectively, right? It is a, one of the most essential public goods. It's issued by the government. 
um, it's essential to our daily lives and to the functioning of our economies. And if there are to be uh, changes in its structure, changes in its design, that should be the subject of public debate. It should reflect our collective values. Um, it should be in the public interest. And it should be done in a way that ultimately, you know, protects society and protects, protects. you know, one of the other issues that we haven't touched upon is the issue of economic cycles, but I think it can help there as well in mitigating recessions. So one needs to have that debate, I think, ahead of the technology becoming, becoming so advanced. And let's just have a final word on how on earth you might get there where, you know, money's able to tell people not to binge drink, not to smoke, not to um, buy uh, sweated labour and, and, and all the rest of it. You know, From what you're saying, it might be a possibility of charities getting together and doing something that could be quite hard to coordinate. It might be the likes of MasterCard doing something which might not look so good in terms of creating a monster across lots of borders. But might there be something in the realm of ethical investment where pension funds or whatever decide that this is how they're going to pay people, and this is the assurance they're able to give consumers. It's possible. I mean, I think there's a number of routes that one can see, and you've just outlined some of them. Um, the other one I think that's perfectly possible is what the government might decide to do is is if we move towards fully electronic currencies and cash, is you could start by giving people information. So again, you're so so. There's a very interesting phenomenon that's happening now in the stock market, and this isn't this is happening pretty much globally, which is towards impact investing and more ethical investing, where you are getting sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, um, lots of investors and individuals who care about the environmental impact, the social impact of a lot of the companies that they're investing in. And so, almost by a process of moral suasion, of a process of of of, of of transparency, you create a sense of these are good companies and these are less good companies, and that causes behavior to change. So you could even start by simply providing information. I mean, if you said, I'd like to know uh, all the prior uses of this coin, and I'm going to give you that information, that will of in of itself could start to have a certain momentum um, and change things. So you could also see a system that evolves through choice. That was Eric Longeren there speaking to me just a little earlier and you can read his piece What If Your Money Had a Mind of Its Own on our website www.prospectmagazine.co.uk The August issue of the magazine's out now on sale in all good news outlets and we're asking this month what if Brexit comes grinding to a halt? The answer, it seems, quite a lot. Get your copy and you will find out more. It's got a huge Union Jack on the cover so you can't miss it. Many thanks for tuning in. I'm Tom Clark. The producer is Jay Elwes. And as I mentioned, you can look at Eric's fascinating and head-spinning piece uh, on our website, along with much more. And while you're there, I'm sure you'll notice that our subscription rates are extremely reasonable. So do have a look and be sure to tune in next week and next time to The Prospect Podcast. <laughs>